as we finish the study on this book that coincides also when our culture celebrates Christmas. And we will see, and I hope you can see, that it's not just me doing this connection, but that Scripture makes this connection between the birth that we're going to read in the book of Ruth and the birth that we celebrate of our Lord Jesus. Ruth, chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. Let us ask God's help as we read and meditate upon His Word. Our Heavenly Father, we gather this day because it is the day that you have set apart since creation so that we might rest and worship you. As during the day, during six days, we work, we do all the things necessary. On this day, we leave those things aside because we want to be reminded of the most important the most important things that gives light to everything that we do, which is you and the gospel that you gave us through your Son. So, Father, as we meditate upon your word, as we are reminded of the birth of your Son, O Father, give us again and renew in us the ability to be amazed at this time in history. Father, gives us the ability to be amazed because it is your Son who was born. God from eternity with you and the Holy Spirit, who because He loved us and He agreed and covenanted with you, He became like one of us in that baby that was born on that day. Oh, Father, as, as we see and are reminded of your Son becoming a man like us, that we might also be renewed in our faith and in our hope, being assured of our great salvation. Because if you were willing to give your only Son to become like one of us and to die in our place, you will surely do anything that is necessary to preserve your own. Father, renew our faith and our hope, particularly in those moments when we are tempted and attacked by the enemy to doubt of your sovereignty and your your goodness. We ask these things in the precious name of your Son. Amen. Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. And he shall be to you a restorer of life, and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and lay him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. 
He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Ezron. Ezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And so it ends, the book of Ruth. We need to wait, you see, till the end of the book of Ruth in order to know the reason why this book was written in the first place. And there are, there are many reasons. We have mentioned them before why this book should be read. Only the plot itself is worth our time. There is a lot also that we can learn and profit from this book. But it is by the end of the narrative that we are made aware why this book is so significant. Why in the midst of so many stories and episodes that were written about so many people, why this particular one is included in our Bibles. We are told that Ruth, the Moabite woman, was the great-grandmother of King David. The great King David. You see, sometimes, and particularly in the Old Testament, we can lose ourselves in so much in human characters that we might miss the most important. And do not get me wrong, we can learn much with Ruth and Boaz. Throughout these sermons, we have learned many things from them. We can even learn much with Naomi, because sometimes we look so much like her. However, it's very easy to read the Old Testament as stories with a moral lesson. But that was not primarily the reason why they were written. Put this in your minds. The Old Testament was not written primarily, and primarily here is important. The Old Testament was not written primarily to teach us how to behave well. The Old Testament was primarily written so that we might know God and love Him above all things. The Old Testament exists because it is God's own revelation to us. That's primary. So the book of Ruth is first and foremost about God, about Yahweh, not just as a God, but the one true God. The book of Ruth teaches us that the most unexpected ways, in the most unexpected ways, and even when God's people is unfaithful, God is always at work, always faithful to His promises, sovereign over history. And as we mentioned before, this is the reason why we Christians prefer to call history providence. Why? Because it is the unfolding of God's decrees. It's not that just God stands there, that He created all things and He lets things just develop naturally, but that we believe in providence because it's God's unfolding plans throughout history. In the words attributed to Spurgeon, that's why God's sovereignty and providence are, is so important to us, that he said the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect rest. Because if things are dependent to us, then we have reasons to be afraid. If things are dependent upon us and what we do, if the story of humankind is dependent on what human beings do, 
then we have reasons to fear because we are dependent upon circumstances and what about people do. But we believe that God is sovereign over history. You see, although in a different way, the narrative of Ruth agrees with the narrative of Job. And if you uh, remember, we have studied Job before we studied Ruth. Because even when circumstances seem to indicate that God is not present, we learn also in Ruth that the circumstances we live do not define our relationship to God. We might have good and bad times in life. We might go through amazing moments where we feel great and God seems amazing. And other times where it seems that God is absent But those circumstances say nothing in themselves about our relationship with God because our relationship with God is not dependent on circumstances but dependent upon Him and Him alone, you see. Even when it feels that God is absent, God reminds us once again that He does not abandon His people. Both in the books of Ruth and Job, we learn that God is our hope and our righteousness. Remember, it is not about what people do to be accepted before God, but about what God does in spite of what people do. Do you realize this? Because this is crucial in the way that we relate with God and in the way that we live in this life, particularly in difficult circumstances. It's not about what people do to be accepted before God, but about what God does in spite of what people do. We learn also that God is good, both merciful and gracious. If in Job we saw that He provides a mediator and a sacrifice to atone for our sins, in Ruth we learn that He provides a Redeemer to save us. But you see, neither Job nor Boaz are actually the mediator or redeemer that we need. In the end, we know that even Job and Boaz needed a redeemer themselves because they were sinners. We saw that Job and Boaz are types. They are shadows which pointed to the one perfect mediator and redeemer who is our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, God doesn't pay us according to our sins. That's what we call mercy. God does not give us what we deserve. But instead, He gives us exactly the opposite of what we deserve, what we call grace. So the book of Ruth is nothing less than a type, a shadow of the gospel. Boaz, and as we will see today, Obed, portray in an imperfect, in limited way, what Jesus did perfectly and fully. So you see, ultimately, this book is not primarily about Ruth or Boaz or even Naomi. These people, as important as they are, and although we learn a lot and should seek to follow their example, they are not the reason why this book was written. The drama and the plot around Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz They are great. This is a great story. But this book was written because of King David explicitly and about the Lord Jesus implicitly and prospectively 
you see. This book is primarily written to reveal us how God continued faithful to His promises. The way that God guaranteed, even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of unfaithfulness, that the genealogical line that was promised. First, we see it in Genesis 3.15. We see it in Noah and in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see it further in Moses. We see it further in David and the prophets. And that genealogical line was not broken because God made sure that would not be broken. And that's why genealogical lines are so important in the Bible. So you see, the book of Ruth ends with the birth of a child. But the book of Ruth implicitly anticipates that another child would be born. And that's the one that we call Jesus, the one that we call Emmanuel. Again, promised in Genesis 3.15, promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promised to Moses, promised to David and the prophets. The Revelation of the events that led to the birth of King David are actually extraordinary. This book is extraordinary. But the birth of King David is the anticipation of another and better king, son of the King David. But first, let us make some observations about the text that we have just read. And since it is about God, as we have seen, let's talk about God. First, note how God acts through ordinary means. See verse 13. Let us read verse 13 again. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now question, is there anything extraordinary in this verse? And by extraordinary, I really mean Out of the ordinary. I'm going to read it again. Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. I want you to note that this verse could be written about any married couple who had a child in all history of humankind. Isn't it true? A married man... He marries a woman. They had a normal sexual relationship whom God blessed and they had a child. Nothing extraordinary here. In fact, in all the book of Ruth, if you read it carefully, we can argue that all was ordinary. We have no miracle portrayed. God doesn't reveal Himself in an extraordinary way. He doesn't speak with any of the characters of the story. Do you realize that? The book of Ruth is about what is ordinary, what is common. It is true that the whole story portrays God as sovereign, gracious, and faithful. However, all those conclusions are deduced from the ordinary lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. I want you to note how God's providence works in what is most common in ordinary, because we typically despise it. We typically imagine how much we would like to have visions or, or to see miracles happening uh, through a gift of miracles or other supernatural or extraordinary 
events. But God works in what is most common and ordinary. There is no miracle occurring in the birth of Obad as far as we know. At least the text doesn't tell us. There is no epiphany. God doesn't speak directly to anyone. But still, note this. He is still sovereign. He is in control. The end of the book is the proof that it was all God's doing. You see, again, many times people think that if they just had the opportunity to receive a special revelation from God, or if they might have at least an unquestionable act or miracle of God, their faith would be much stronger. But that's a lie. Remember that even in biblical times, a miracle was something out of the ordinary. It was not common. Because usually God works out His plans in the ordinary. Miracles and visions and so on were used with a purpose that was not supposed to be common. It was not the way that God intended most of the people to come to the knowledge of Him and to be edified. But through ordinary things, through His Word, in the end, remember that neither Ruth nor Naomi, nor Boaz were aware of how important their ordinary lives were to the fulfillment of God's plans. We know. We know because we have God's revelation and because we read the book of Ruth. And now we know that they were of that descendancy and line of King David and the Lord Jesus. But they didn't know. Most likely they died with no clue that through their son Obed... God would provide another son who would be the savior of the world. You see, Ruth and Boaz were like you and me. They lived by faith, trusting in God, trusting His promises, trusting that God was both sovereign and good. And we must be reminded of this same truth. You see, in our ordinary lives, God is present working all things for the good of His people. You see, we are tempted to disbelieve. It's not a matter of seeing a sign or receiving a particular revelation. You see, it is a matter of faith. Faith allows us to see God in the ordinary life because it enables us to see God at work. It is faith that allows us to believe God's work and apply it to our ordinary lives. It was faith that moved Ruth and Boaz. Not an epiphany, not a special revelation, not an extraordinary event that they could name. It was in their ordinary lives that they trusted God in His promises. So we need to recognize God in our ordinary lives because we focus too much in what we can see. But God manifests Himself in so many ways every day. God is at work every day, everywhere. Either people recognize it or not. God was working things for the good of His people, even when Naomi was unaware of it. Even in the midst of the bitterness of Naomi, God was working for her good. You see, the reality of God's actions are not dependent on human perception. God is sovereign, period. God is at work, period. 
It's not dependent on our perception or human perception. God is at work. The question is, do you recognize God at work or do you lack faith or are too busy to recognize it in your daily life? How much do we miss when we are merely led by circumstances? Just like Naomi, how much pain, fear, even despair might come upon even believers when we lose the ability to recognize God in our daily lives. But He is there constantly, unwaveringly, faithfully, lovingly. You see, how much bitterness do we accumulate in times of suffering just because our lack of faith? Wasn't that Naomi's problem? And you see, just like Naomi, sometimes we might think that life has no sense, that God is against us, and that we are hopeless. Just like Naomi, sometimes we might be bitter with life, bitter with other people, bitter with the loss of someone or something. Just like Naomi, we might be bitter because we see no meaning in life and in our circumstances. However, again, remember that neither Ruth, Naomi, or Boaz were aware of what God was doing. They had no clue of the meaning of the birth of their firstborn. Ruth and Boaz had faith and just did what was right because they believed in God and His promises. So I want to encourage you, if you are a child of God, be encouraged because you belong to Him. And even if you are not aware, or even if circumstances seem to be dark, God is still in control. You see, one of the ways that we can cultivate a culture of thankfulness, of attentiveness, of recognizing God's work in us and in others, is just simply by practicing every day. It is by affirming every day that the daily bread on our tables is a gift of God but not just because we pray quickly before it, but because we truly recognize and are reminded and bring it to mind every time we eat. It is by mentioning audible God's daily blessings. It is by teaching our children to value what they have as God's gift and the fact that they complain too much is an evidence that we miss in our teaching because they take things just for granted as if they deserve it. It is by starting and finishing the day saying, Lord God, we thank you because all is from you. It is just a practice, something that we should do every day and continually. At the same time, number two, the book of Ruth teaches us that God is both the author and actor of Israel's salvation, that Yahweh is sovereign, good, and faithful. And when we speak, note this because this is very important, so that we know exactly what we mean when we say these things. When we speak about the fact that God uses ordinary means to accomplish His plans, we are not saying that God is an actor in history trying to use what He can in order to make things go His way. That's not what we mean. When we say that God works in in the ordinary things of life, 
we mean that God has decreed all things that come to pass and that most of His decrees are played out in ordinary things. That God can act in extraordinary ways, but the way that He plays out His works, His decrees and His plans is actually through ordinary things. That's what we mean. But at the same time, we believe in a God that actually acts in history. He didn't just decree things in eternity and lets them play out by themselves. No, we believe in a personal God who relates with His creation and acts in history. We believe in a personal God, not just a God in heaven watching what is going on on earth. No, He acts. He works His providence in every single detail of life to the point that the Lord Jesus, when He was exhorting His disciples to trust God, He reminded them that even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Luke 12, 7. Even that, even those little insignificant, although when you start to lose them, Uh, they're not that insignificant anymore. But even those insignificant hairs are all numbered one by one. The whole book of Ruth presupposes a God who acts in history. The invisible God is at work in the ordinary things of life. You see, He cannot be seen, but all things that occur have His hands A God who, although is not bounded by space and time, He acts in space and time. The story is real. It took place in the time of the judges. In the Middle East, the land of Moab is what we call now the country of Jordan. And of course, Bethlehem is still what we call Israel today. Ruth and Boaz and Naomi were real people. And note what the text says explicitly about this God, whose name was Yahweh. Look what it says in the whole book. Although God never speaks in an audible way, although He never acts in an extraordinary way, and He acts in the ordinary lives of these people, see what the book says about this God. See chapter 1 and verse 6. It was what Naomi heard. She was in Moab and she heard this. Chapter 1, verse 6. The Lord had visited His people and given them food. Okay, let us make this clear. The Bible never affirms that God is only concerned about what so-called spiritual things. That this separation between the material and the spiritual doesn't exist in the Bible. (laughs) That God is concerned and is acting in every single sphere of life even when there is lack of food and abundance of food. We see also that people recognize His sovereignty in all affairs of life, that God's actions are boundless. See chapter 1, the second part of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9. May the Lord deal kindly with you. This is Naomi speaking to her daughters-in-law. As you have dealt with the dead and with me, the Lord grant that you may find rest. Naomi, even in her faulty theology, knew that God acted in history. 
She also recognized that her own difficult circumstances had been brought by God. See, for example, verse 13 in chapter 1. Know, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You can see also verse 21. So Naomi believed that God was acting in history. And we should believe also in all spheres of life. That is the reason why when we come to this book and we see some promises being made between people, those solemn promises are made before Yahweh because they knew that they were accountable to this God because they believed that He acted in history. So we read verse 17 of chapter 1, May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is the words of Ruth. And if you go then to chapter 3, verse 13, that we are not going to read, but Boaz uses the same type of words to make a promise to Ruth. You see. So it is no wonder that when we come to the last section of the book, to its conclusion, to its goal, climax, that we read these words which occurred in the most ordinary and common See, again, turn again to chapter 4, verse 13. And the words are very simple. The Lord gave her conception. Isn't this ordinary? Doesn't this happen every day? We are filled of children here. (laughs) Okay? Our prayer sheet always has someone expecting there. So it is ordinary, at least in this church, which is a good thing. So when the text says, the Lord gave her conception, it is ordinary, but nonetheless real, because every time a child is born, it's because God gave conception. Do you see? Do not lose yourselves in answers that come out of your mere curiosity that the text never intended to answer. The question was not if Ruth was barren, And God opened her womb at this point. Maybe that Malon was the one that was infertile. We don't know why uh, she was married for 10 years with this man and never had a child. We don't know if it was because of Ruth. We don't know if it was because of Malon. But we do know that it was the Lord that gave conception. Which happens at every time. Because it is the Lord that opens the womb or closes the, the womb according to His promises. And this is very, very important because every time that we celebrate with many couples the birth of a child, we also need to deal with those that in God's providences, in God's providence, were not allowed to have children. And then we say, we don't know why, but we know that was God's providence. And that is the comfort It was not about Ruth and Boaz. It was about the fact that the Lord gave her conception, you see. So when the text says that the Lord gave her conception, the goal is not to make a biological or anatomical or physiological point about Ruth. The point is this. It was God's doing. That's the point that the text is making. This book is about God 
His plans in His works. And chapter 4 is the culmination of what God was doing. This book, from beginning to end, wishes to show how God was sovereign over history in the history of His people and about His faithfulness to His promises. This book proves that God is both the author and actor of the salvation of His people, even when He is just working through ordinary and common lives. He was the one taking the initiative, you see, when He called Abraham and made him promises. And He was the one that even in the period of the judges, even in this period of chaos and anarchy and disobedience, that He was acting. And it is because He is the author and the actor of the salvation of His people that we make the same conclusion of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. That after he exposed the wondrous works of salvation that God has done for His people, this is the conclusion. For from Him and through Him and to Him, because He is both the author and the actor, but also what? The goal and the purpose of His works. So from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. So imagine what is the conclusion. To Him be the glory forever. Why? Because it had nothing to do with us. It had nothing to do in the end with Ruth or Boaz or even Naomi. It had to do what God had planned and decreed what God was doing had to do with His plans, had to do with the fact that even if they didn't know, through them and their lineage, Jesus Christ would be born. So finally, God receives all the glory. Let us turn to verses 14 and 15. And note that the women start as the men did, as we saw last week. See verse 14. May the Lord be blessed who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Now I have another question. Who is the Redeemer the women are referring to when they say, May the Lord be blessed who, he, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer? Okay, this is a tricky question. Why? Because you will agree with me that when we hear the word Redeemer on this story, who do we think it is? Anyone? Boaz, right? It's not a wrong answer. It's Scripture that says so. Okay, so read the story. And yes, when Redeemer, when the name Redeemer, the noun Redeemer is used, we think immediately of Boaz. But... Is this who the women refer to? And the answer is no. First, see the blessing. Let's go a little bit backwards. See the blessing of the men that we saw last week. Verses 11 and 12. Because Boaz says, Are you witnesses of what have just occurred this day? And they say, the men reply, We are witnesses. And then they give a blessing. 
May the Lord make the women who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom tame our board to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. So the question is, how is Boaz going to act worthily and become renowned? We have seen this last week. How is Boaz's house to be like the house of Perez? And we have the answer by the end of verse 12. Because what? Because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So we can say this, that the grounds, the foundation, the reason of the blessings is the promised seed, is the offspring is the descendant of Boaz. Do you, do you understand this? The reason why he is being blessed is because of this offspring. Now let us return to the women's blessing. Who is the Redeemer mentioned by these women? Let us read again verses 13 and 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name, whose name? The Redeemer's name. Are we all on the same page? Good. So may His name, the Redeemer's name, be renowned in Israel. Remember the blessing of the man? About a name for Boaz? We have it again here. A name that will be renowned in Israel. And then verse 15, he, he who, the Redeemer, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to whom? To him, the Redeemer, unexpectedly. Because we are used now to think about Redeemer Boaz, unexpectedly, the text refers not to Boaz as the Redeemer here, although he is, but to Obed. He is the offspring. And note the name of the child. His name is Obed, then in Hebrew means servant. And I think that at this point, I do not need to argue anymore about the importance of names in biblical times, do I? For those who have been throughout this study. Once more, the name of the baby was not random. It was not because it sounded well and their parents liked it. It was not because it was a family tradition. It was because, truly, Obed was a servant of God. He was God's gift not only to Naomi and Ruth, but to the people of Israel. Because it was through this line that King David was born. The very existence of Obed was in God's mind and plan from eternity past. Of course, there were ordinary means. Boaz married Ruth. However, Obed was in God's plan all along. And he was not the end of God's plan. You see, remember that the book of Ruth was written way after it occurred. Okay, they didn't know at that time about King David specifically as a name. Only as a promise. 
But the whole point of the book is to show God's faithfulness in retrospective in how he preserved the promised line to the point of King David. And Obed is God's servant, God's instrument to achieve his purposes and his plan. You see, the text is clear. King David is mentioned twice, verses 17 and 22. Obed was given so that the line might be preserved and David, the great King David, might be born. However, again, King David was not the end of the story. He was not the promised Messiah who would save the world from its sins. King David was the greatest king of Israel. There was none like him until a better King David was born. King David was the greatest king, but he was not the end of the story in God's plans. That's why genealogies, which for most are one of the most boring parts of Scripture, are actually the greatest display of God's faithfulness. Do you know why? Because it started with Abraham and Adam and Eve. And it went all through the Lord Jesus. You can see that in Matthew 1. That starts in Abraham, goes to Jesus. But if you go to Luke 3, it starts with Jesus. And it goes all the way back to Adam, the Son of God. Do you know why? Because that line is the proof that God was acting in history and making sure that every name that is recorded there was God's plan from eternity until the better has come, namely the Lord Jesus. You see, the genealogy that we see in Ruth 4 is just a piece of a larger story. Open your Bibles in Matthew 1 because we have read this text this morning. And if you open your Bibles in Matthew 1, you will see this genealogy from Abraham to Jesus. And you know what we see there? We see that Ruth and the genealogies in Ruth were actually a piece of a bigger story. See verses 3 to 6a. In Matthew, so Matthew 1, verses 3 to 6. Do you see that starts with Perez in the second part of verse 3? Then it mentions Ram and Aminadab and Nashon and Salmon. And Boaz by Rahab, and then Obed, and Jesse, and King David. Now turn to Ruth 4. And you will see that the importance of this genealogy is that you, we can pick it up. And we will see that it's just a slice of the cake. And we can fit it perfectly in Matthew 1. So that we can have a bigger picture and appreciate the book of Ruth in the context of the whole story. And it was all God's doing. So when we read the most common and ordinary announcement on verse 13 of chapter 4 of Ruth, 
And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. For us Christians, it rings a bell, doesn't it? When we hear that a a child was born in the context of the fulfillment of God's faithfulness and promises, it recalls the prophet Isaiah when he says on chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this because it is always God's doing. You see, when we hear that a child was born in the context of the fulfillment of God's faithfulness and promises... It recalls the fulfillment of all the promises of God when we read in Luke 2, 10 and 11. And the angel said to them, the pastors who were shepherding their flocks at night, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So in the same way, when we see Naomi's response to the blessing and the birth of the child, see verse 16 of chapter 4 of Ruth. See this image that Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. Again, All ordinary things. The baby who was for her, as we read in verse 15, a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. But now note the image. Her redeemer was a babe whom she took in her arms. Do you realize this incongruence here? We expect someone strong at this point if he is to be a redeemer, but he is just a babe whom she is holding in her arms. Can you imagine what was in Naomi's mind? We don't know for sure, the text doesn't say, but can you imagine the meaning of this baby for her? After she lost everything, after she lost her husband and her two sons, whom, note, she had also held in her lap like she is holding now, Obed, can you imagine the meaning of this baby? The renewal of our hope. Can you imagine the tears coming down of her face as she held this precious baby? But if this baby was precious to Naomi and important in God's plans, imagine what it meant the birth of the Savior of the whole world. I think that you will agree with me that all of us can be sensitive and can be compassionate and even feel a little bit what Naomi was feeling at that point. That even if we read the text carefully and if we imagine it, we will have also tears in our face. 
But now imagine that if that baby was that important, what can we say about the birth of the Savior of the world? You know why? Because a similar image is given to us in Luke 2.7. Because after Jesus was born, we read this. And she gave birth, her is Mary. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You see, when the shepherds visited Mary and the baby and told the mother all that they have heard and saw, you know what the text says? Mary was with no words. It just says in Luke 2.19, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Mary thinking that that babe would be the savior of the world? That, he had, that she had just given birth? Her child. Her child. Mary, a young woman, an ordinary woman, gives birth to the Savior of the world. Can you imagine? Let us pause for a second here. Listen to what the Word of God says about this baby whom Mary held in her arms. Because this is what we read in the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2.5 and following. It speaks about Christ Jesus. It is this baby. But then it tells us something that it cannot be said about any other baby that was ever born or will be born in this world. Because it tells us this, that Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, wow, He was God Himself. Before He was a man, He was God eternally. That's what we read in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, but there's something more. The Word was God. But then we read that although He was in the form of God, He did not hold Himself to that position. We read that He emptied Himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. You know what the text is saying? It's very simple. He became like you and me. That's what Christmas means. God became a man. Can you imagine? Can you fathom? When Mary was given the privilege of conceiving and giving birth to Jesus... When Mary gave birth to Jesus and she held him on her arms, it was the Lord himself that she was holding. She was holding the one who had created all things, including her. She was holding her Lord and Savior. Do you understand now what it means that God is both the author and the actor Of the salvation of his people. That he decreed all things. That he works in all things. But it means more than that. That he was the one in the person of Christ. Who made sure and guaranteed 
our salvation. That not just that God works all things in this world, but that He Himself guaranteed that it was sure in His own person. Listen to me, please. What I'm saying to you is that if you are a believer, and listen carefully, only if you are a believer, but if you are, if you have repented and believed in Christ as your Savior, if you have trusted your life to Him, you have nothing to doubt or fear. Listen to me, please. I'm not just saying God will work things out in your favor. What I am saying is that God has already did all that is necessary to guarantee your salvation and that He did it Himself. He so loved you that He gave Himself for you. He loved you so much that in the person of the Son, He humiliated Himself and behold, He became a baby, a true baby. He humiliated Himself to our condition and weakness. Imagine the Lord Jesus as helpless as a baby can be. Held by His mother. Nursed by His mother. Wrapped in some cloths to protect Him from the, clo- from the cold. And put in a manger so that He could lay safe. This is the proof that what was true with Naomi is true with us. That God works all things for the good of those who love Him who have been called by Him. You see, Naomi did not know at one point, but God was working in her favor. And this is for us to learn also that salvation is by grace alone. You see, it does not have to do with what you do in order to be accepted by God. It has to do with what God has done in spite of who you are. In spite of who Naomi was, God was working for her good. He is the one who decreed and accomplished all that was necessary because our salvation is a gift. And it is true for you if you are a believer. So again, I tell you what I told you last week, brothers and sisters. The Old Testament, as we see in the book of Ruth, is accumulating expectation. And the whole Old Testament grows in expectation for the coming of the Messiah. It's always looking forward. But it is that coming, the advent in the person of the Lord Jesus, that we celebrate this week. In this celebration, we are reminded of the God-made man for our salvation. His incarnation so that he could be like you and me. And by being like you and me, He could represent us on that cross and pay for our sins. But the story is not yet over. We live in the expectation of the return of the King. And as we wait for His return, let us wait patiently with faith and hope. Because God's promises are true and never failing. His grace is abounding and covers every sin. His mercy knows no boundaries. He forgives all those who truly repent. And more, He is both the founder and perfecter of our faith. Take courage in your weakness. 
because his strength is greater than all our weakness. So we must end by all saying, because we know that from him and through him and to him be all things, we are gathered here today to worship him because our desire is that all glory might be given to him and to him alone. Amen.